Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your glue sniffers of gospel, your heavy hitters of hey-ho, your superintendents of rock and roll high school, your bodhisattvas of the Blitzkrieg Bop. Jordan wrote all of those, but my name is Alex Heigl. <laughs> and my name is Jordan Runtog. Those were okay, right? I probably could have picked two <laughs> and just gone with that. But <laughs> that's anytime you, you you think of asking yourself for edit advice from me, just keep that one in mind. <laughs> probably could have just picked two. Yep. I say with love. I know, I know. <laughs> Speaking of brevity. Good, good, very good. That's right. Today we are discussing one of the most earth-shattering debut albums in rock history, 1976's Ramones by Ramones, or is it The Ramones? I've never really been sure. In case it's not abundantly clear, I am not as steeped in the world of punk as my dear friend Alex Heigl, and I will defer to him on much of this. But I will say, I always got the sense that if Iggy Pop and the New York Dolls were the parents of punk, then the Ramones were the screaming newborn infants, <laughs> untamed and purely driven by primal instinct. In a sense, I admire the rawness. <laughs> I admire the purity. Exactly. Yes, exactly. But given my penchant for melody and Baroque style pop and studio experimentations, this 29 minutes of breakneck three chord juvenilia never really was my jam. Although you'd think it would be, considering they took their name from Paul McCartney's pre-Beatles stage name. You'd think that would endear them to me, but um, not, not really, not so much. Uh, it's similar to how I feel about the Rolling Stones. I like the sounds for a little bit, but then after a while, all their songs start to blend into one for me. And um, I, I almost want to play like a Name That Tune style game with you and see how long it takes for you to identify <laughs> different Ramones songs. Kind of like that Caleb Gammon video where he's trying to identify Jack Antonoff's production on the new Taylor Swift album. Does the DD you know. count off count? Can you give me give me a taste of that? It's really just... It's, oh, no, hey, oh. yeah, actually, it's just yeah. I don't even think he closes his mouth when he does it. <laughs> 
what a cartoon of a human being. I never really, I, my knowledge of the Ramones is really not what it should be. And it really wasn't until researching this episode that I watched a, a, a fair number of interviews and performance clips with the Stones. And Dee Dee, what a gem. Oh, uh, you said Stones there. Yeah, well, you take my meaning. <laughs> Uh, I want to put you in the hot seat right now, Heigl. I know uh -huh. this is probably an unfair question, but I, I ask this with, with no judgment. This is a sincere question. Mm -hmm. What is it about the Ramones that appeals to you? I want you to make a convert out of me. Yeah, I mean, much like David Lynch, I am not a Ramones guy, capital R-G, but I really do love them as a as a concept and, and foundational, you know, they are the lodestar of everything. I mean, any anytime some f***ing British... Barney Hoskins or Nick Kent type wants to start making the case for British music exceptionalism. So I say, sorry, punk started in America. But getting away from that, uh, I think the Ramones are so fascinating because for all of the highfalutin VH1 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame white music journalists talking about how punk was really about stripping things back to its essentials and the boop, 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 boop. I think the Ramones fit that brief more than anybody because if you listen to, I mean, first of all, the first punk band was arguably deaf out of Detroit. So once again, oh, yeah. you know, great documentary, once again, stole it from black people. But um, when you're talking about all of the bands that are considered sort of the proto punks, they are coming from such a kind of blues and R&B steeped approach like you know new york dolls iggy i mean iggy was like a blues drummer you know uh, all those guys and that they, they underground yeah did the the marvin Gaye song when did that was the marvin Gaye song they did uh hitchhike i think sure they but i mean even with the velvet underground the velvet underground are such an outlier for me yeah because you know they had so much other shit going on with all the lamonte young influence and and all the weird kind of experimentalism right. and, and warhol but I mean, of, of of some of the more foundational punk bands. And then once you get into the Sex Pistols, the Sex Pistols are a pub rock band. They have like a very loose. I mean, that music, with the exception of Johnny Rotten, is like two or three steps removed from like T-Rex boogie rock. You know, there I said it. Oh, yeah. And then the Clash were obviously so musically like omnivorous that their influences just kind of come from all over. But when you're really talking about people who were like, what makes a good song like uh, a hook? Great. Here's hooks and nothing else. And like, you know, because I really do think they have a great melodic sense. And Joey has such a, you know, he's got that sort of little croon to his voice that just helps all of that buzz sawing go down much easier. <laughs> and so I think they represent the purest distillation of punk as an idea of going back to like 50s and 60s rock and roll, you know. And and they're interesting, too, and just because like I'm a rhythm dork and like, you know, a lot of the British bands were uh, influenced either by pub rock or with like the Clash reggae. And again, even with like Stooges and stuff, like it still kind of like has that sort of bluesy swing. But with the Ramones, it just it almost I, I was thinking about it. It sounds like those Strokes records, like the first Strokes records when they were trying to make them sound like industrial, like drum programming, because there's just zero swing they played to a click, but if they would have had a grid, I'm sure they would have just squared it off to a grid, too. 
you know, all downstrokes on the guitar. Like it's just, it's just like a great streamlined, well-built series of cars, you know? And then all, and of course I'm just a sucker for like the kind of sixties fun house vibe that they were representing as well. So I, I mean, that's what I really love about them. And, and I'm, and you know, I was kind of a dilettante. I didn't get into them until I bought the, the greatest hits in, in high school because I was just intimidated by the 17 other albums. Um, but yeah, even their latter day stuff has some real bangers, man. My favorite song is probably Pet Cemetery from the Stephen King movie. And well, that, yeah, of course it is. I'm biased, yeah. But but I also think that that song has such a... Uh, Joey's voice sounds so good on that song. And there's such an, a melancholy to the way that he was able... he Like, he was able to impart such a, like, sweet kind of little boy lost attitude to all their stuff that diffuses that, like, snarling obnoxiousness that comes from the rest of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I will say, I, I don't, it's, I don't think I've ever talked about this part of my life on here, but I, for years, was a, a, a DJ, like a, an old soul, uh, R&B, 60s girl group, 45s DJ around Brooklyn, and a lot of my friends who also did that with me, who, you know, really loved the kind of Amy Winehouse-y, beehived, 60s, somewhere between Greaser and Maud aesthetic and sound also really love the Ramones. And I never really saw the overlap because it just seemed like two completely different eras, two completely different sonic worlds to me. But then diving a little deeper for this episode, I did see, I mean, first of all, the, the Ramones loved all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Shangri-Las and Beach Boys and the Stones and just all the, the, all my favorite stuff, British Invasion and girl group stuff. And there is so much of that. I mean, Judy is a punk is such a perfect pop song. And I don't think I ever really paid much attention to that. I mean, it was Jeff, definitely a part of it was judging a book by its cover, but, um, one other thing that I want to say that is so, that I think is so important with them is that they are like the reason that I think they fit so well in the CBGB's crowd is that with the exception of like the New York dolls and maybe some early blondie, like they were really not doing anything that was a ripoff of the blues, you mm. know, New York dolls, arguably were but like johnny ramone was explicitly like i will never take a blues solo even though his favorite guitarist was jimmy page like you might get a one four five chord progression and you might get maybe some little bluesy bends in joey's voice but like it is the first i think like at that point in the whatever 20 year history of rock and roll them and that cbgb's crowd were like the first guys who were very conspicuously like not making stuff that was just ripoffs of blues and r&b Hot take. Maybe not that hot. I probably sold it from somewhere. Tepid take. Tepid take. Tepid takes. <laughs> That's our new spinoff <laughs> podcast. Right? <laughs> That's my show. Well, despite my lack of appreciation and familiarity with the Ramones, I would never deny their impact. And I have to phrase Brian Eno's oft-quoted, possibly apocryphal comment about the Velvet Underground. Though their debut didn't sell in huge quantities upon its release, most who bought it formed a band, or at least that's the popular legend. The Ramones made rock stardom accessible to more than just a handful of virtuosos and served as an invitation for generations of kids to grab a guitar and let it rip. And for me, who always harbored dreams of playing in a band, despite having only a modicum of talent, I would like to offer them a heartfelt thanks. And also to you, Heigl, for being stupid enough to invite me into your band 
before you ever heard me play. Hey, you earned it. (laughs) Well, from the insane stew of personalities that went into the band to all the ways in which they deliberately sought to copy the Beatles while making music that caused most Beatles fans like me to recoil (laughs) to the threadbare circumstances of the recording and releasing of a record that launched a thousand metaphorical ships. Here's everything you didn't know about the Ramones debut album. Sweet, sweet Joey Ramone, Jeffrey Ross Hyman. Uh, probably the best place to start this episode as the, the band's gangly, alien proportioned frontman. Joey was six foot six uh, and probably, what, a buck 20 dripping wet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With like hair down to his shoulders. Uh, he's up there in the pantheon of iconic rock stances. I, I, I feel very comfortable saying that. Maybe not top five, but top ten, certainly. Just that one hand around the mic, other hand up in the air, leaning forward at like a perpetual almost 45-degree angle. What more do you want from a punk front man? Perfect. <laughs> um, he was born on May 19th, 1951 in Queens. Um, horrifyingly, he was born with a I looked up the actual medical name and then forgot to add this. A partially formed parasitic twin, which wasn't full on yeah. like horror movie style, but more like just like a big gross lump of tissue with like teeth and hair um, growing out of his back, which was later surgically removed and contributed to his health problems all of his life, which I have to assume I'm just speculating, but that might have been part of his impetus for, uh, you know, some of the goofy sideshow stuff. and. Um, why the band adopted uh, Gabba Gabba Hay from Todd Browning's uh, indelible movie Freaks as their uh, as their onstage chant. Kind of horrifying. It is. Is that is that, pro- is that problematic to say? Am no, I, not- I mean I I sure hope I sure hope they didn't take pictures of it and show him. Um, <laughs> Which wouldn't have been the most traumatic thing in his childhood. Let's that's be true. Honest. Joey had a relatively happy childhood, or at least early on, growing up in Forest Hills, Queens, although he was diagnosed with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and schizophrenia as a teen. His uh, brother, Mickey Lay, who's Lee, uh, whose book is uh, I Slept with Joey Ramone, uh, said That's he- such a great title yeah. for, for his brother to write. That's amazing. He, uh, he said Joey heard voices that would force him to repeat. Uh, actions or or repeat other things. I you know they, there's a lot of talk about later on in their career when they were traveling that he would have to like go back to the hotel and and you know check that he'd done things in the correct way to to enable him to leave. Um, and his mother though divorced her first husband and then her second husband died in a car accident while she was on vacation. So adding to that Dickensian background, uh, Mickey Lee once recalled, it was difficult growing up sharing a room with someone turning lights on and off, running the water in the bathroom for hours and hours and unable to throw things away. Despite launching a genre of music that was supposedly in direct opposition to the previous decade, Joey grew up loving pretty standard issue music for a kid of his times. The Beatles, The Who, David Bowie, and my beloved Phil Spector produced girl groups. Uh, let me specify, the girl groups are my beloved. Phil Spector, not, not so much. <laughs> Joey started out as a drummer at the age of 13, inspired by Keith Moon, which makes a lot of sense, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, he was a cartoon character himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 
And then eventually Joey got a hold of an acoustic guitar just a few years later. And beginning in 1972, Joey played in a glam punk band called Sniper, performing under the alias, this is so good, Jeff Starship. <laughs> I can only imagine his reaction when Jefferson Airplane changed their name to the Jefferson Starship. Why did they do that? I don't know. I mean... Acid? As a, as a, as a new... Yeah. Was it because Yorma left? Uh, Yorma and Jack left? Wasn't it just Balin and, and Old Girl? I think you're right. Yeah. Did you call her Old Girl? Old Girl. It's a term of endearment. I know. Not I being know. ageist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the band Sniper, Joey Ramone's <laughs> early band, played alongside Ramone contemporaries like the New York Dolls and Suicide. But Joey was replaced in the band in 1974, supposedly because he wasn't pretty. Oh. I mean, you know, that's what uh, Johnny, I think, originally wanted for the Ramones. They wanted like a, a much prettier front man. Um, yeah, probably my favorite Joey anecdote that I read in his Rolling Stone obit was that he actually took his singing very seriously. He studied with an opera singer. He would do breathing exercises. And he used a vaporizer to open up his vocal cords before every show. And this backfired in November 1977. Right before a show at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. The vaporizer blew up in his face and he was rushed to the hospital for emergency treatment and then returned to do the show. Yes. Record, yes. record producer Ed Stasium, who I worked on some of their latter day stuff, said he was on stage looking like Bob Dylan with burn cream all over his face. The rolling thunder look. <laughs> Joey was a trooper. After the last encore, Joey was rushed back to the hospital, uh, this time to the New York Burns, to the Burn Center, where he stayed for a week, an experience that inspired him to write one of the most beloved Ramon songs, I Want to Be Sedated. I didn't know that. Wow. Although that song has been either ruined or improved, I can't tell which for me, by the Nick at Night uh, bumper from the 90s when they were promoting <laughs> um, the Brady Bunch, uh, I Want to Be a Brady. I have not heard that, and yes, you did. We play. I made. I made you listen to it when we did our Brady Bunch episode. You clearly blocked it out, which oh, I understand yeah. and appreciate. Yeah, yeah. I want to be a Brady out of Charleston in the living room and that grace in the yard. I cruise around in the Brady wheels. Life will not be hard. I want to be a Brady. Pretty good, medium funny. That's horrific. Yeah, it is. Uh, here's a question for you, Heigl. Mm. I don't know if there's an easy answer to this or a really easy answer to this. I'm not sure which. Um, how much of punk is an offshoot of glam? Because I'm, I guess, I'm really thinking of the New York Dolls here specifically, looking a lot like Roxy Music or something. The stripped down sound and the peacocked outfits that all just sort of screams glam to me. Uh, and then their obvious appreciation for melody and pop. I mean, you've got the New York Dolls covering uh, the Shangri Las, "Give Him a Great Big Kiss." which is one of my favorite 60s girl group songs. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure. I'm not super encyclopedic on the New York Dolls, but I mean, I think when you're talking about glam, you're talking about such a distinctly British thing that kind of morphed yeah, from the true. lineage of like Pentangle and all that dance around the maypole shit into like electric music. Because like T-Rex is all about, it's like has a goofy fantasy lyrics. David Bowie had done the laughing gnome and this all that other weird stuff. But um, New York Dolls, I mean, uh, David Johansson is a, 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 an encyclopedia of um, 
early rock and roll and blues songs. Um, he's really like a very big student of that stuff. And as far as their and Johnny Thunders, I think was just a Chuck Berry freak. And then as far as the um, as far as the look, I think they just wanted to look like hookers. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, I mean and I, and but I'm, I, not, I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, and I'm not trying to be difficult. Uh, why? I, I want to know like what that what. I don't what know. I don't remember them. From. I yeah. I don't know. I having said what I just said about David Johansson, I would maybe venture a guess that there's some kind of like vague inspiration from like someone like Flip Wilson or like a uh, uh, like a the kind of history of of drag and comedy and as descending from like vaudeville oh. and like kind of um you know minstrel shows and shit in the south where like early rock and roll actually got started but i'm not sure if it was actually that highfalutin i don't remember much about their sections and please kill me i was just so horrified by the litany of um gutters uh that uh <laughs> iggy pop was dragging himself through <laughs> and all the nazi shit that they were all into that really pissed me off anyway uh well, speaking speaking of that uh the villain of our story in as much as it's possible john william cummings was born in queens on october 8th 1948 the only son of estelle a polish ukrainian waitress and francis an irish steam fitter Johnny's dad was a strict disciplinarian. Johnny would later recall how his father made him pitch in a little league game the day after he'd broken his big toe because Francis himself had never called in sick on a day of work. Uh, Johnny's teenage band was called the Tangerine Puppets, uh, named after a Donovan song, alongside the future Ramones drummer Thomas Erdely, uh, or, or Erd I, I I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm sorry, it's Tommy Ramone. Uh, <laughs> Per Rolling Stone, one time when this high school band was playing Satisfaction uh, at a school function, um, Johnny Ramone noticed the student president of their class standing in the wings and ran over to him and hit him in the balls with his guitar neck. Another time, Johnny got in a fight with the band's lead singer while they were in the middle of playing, beating him on stage until the other members pulled him off. Tommy Ramone offered a great quote, saying, We all liked Johnny. That anger is pure. <laughs> Johnny was a genuine delinquent though One of his pastimes was hauling up Discarded TVs to the roofs of apartment buildings And pushing them off Onto the sidewalk as close as he could To people walking or standing uh, He was he was like just beating up people He was I think actually mugging people um, A brief stint At a military academy in Peekskill Though failed to break his Artistic spirit And he worked uh, in a couple of odd jobs uh, like uh, he worked as, as a plumber alongside his dad, uh, and he was also delivering dry cleaning, um, which is how he met Dee Dee. Just you gotta the... you gotta say it like Dexter from Dexter's Laboratory. <laughs> no, Dee 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 Dee's one of the only. I mean, he's up there with Sid, right? As one of the only mono named punkers, Debbie. Nah, mm. people just call her Blondie, right? <laughs> or thought she was Blondie. Uh, Lou. Lou, no, Lou oh, well, yeah. Iggy, Iggy, yeah. obviously, probably yeah. not so much Lou. Um, anyway, Dee Dee was the man's most, uh, the band's most prolific composer and lyricist. Uh, he was born Douglas Glenn Colvin on September eighteenth, nineteen fifty one, in Fort Lee, Virginia, to an American soldier and a German woman. Uh, Dee Dee once referred to his mom as a drunken nut job, so <laughs> maybe that was her other occupation. 
Uh, as an infant, his family relocated to West Berlin due to his father's military service. And because of said military career, they were moving around a lot. Um, and Dee Dee had a lonely childhood with very few real friends. His parents separated during his early teens. And he remained in Berlin until the age of 15. But then he, his mom, and sister moved to Forest Hills to basically get away from their dad, who I believe was a real abusive garbage person. I imagine that that was probably the basis of a lot of trauma for Dee Dee that was to come in his life. He did not have an easy life. Yeah, I mean, I glommed over a lot of the stuff that, that kind of led up to that. I mean, he was like hitchhiking across the country and picking up a drug problem in L.A. That's where he first became a, a male hustler and just was a pretty constantly out of his head on one thing or another but great presence <laughs> yeah and a very and had one of the most poignant uh epitaphs in all of in all of punk rock his headstone just reads hey i gotta go now yeah i i i paid my respects to him last time i was in uh la and uh slightly less respect to johnny <laughs> Uh, well, he bonded with Johnny on their dry cleaning delivery job over a mutual love of proto-punk touchstones like the Stooges and the MC5. Oh, I forgot to mention the MC5 earlier. Man, so much early punk came out of Detroit. Uh, one day, the pair of them made the trek to Manny's Music in Manhattan, where Johnny picked up a blue Ventures model, Mossright, and Dee Dee snagged a Dan Electro bass, which he later smashed uh, and eventually oh. adopted one of the one of the one of the more notable. Uh, P-basers in punk. Um, but all of these kind of hold a candle to the genuine actual familial trauma of Tommy Ramone. Uh, born in January 1949 in Budapest, his Jewish parents narrowly escaped the Holocaust. They were hidden by their neighbors, but many of his relatives were killed by the Nazis. Then in 1957, they fled the Hungarian Revolution, emigrating to the South Bronx before upgrading to Forest Hills. Um, Tommy was a guitar player at first. He played guitar, the aforementioned Tangerine Puppets, and then uh, left high school. I don't know that he actually graduated uh, and got a job at the record plant where, among many other things, he worked on records from Mountain, John McLaughlin, Herbie Hancock, and he was an assistant engineer on Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies album, uh, where he has a really adorable anecdote of uh, Jimmy asking him if he thought Leslie West of Mountain was a better guitar player than him. And Tommy told Tape Op, For a second I thought he was kidding, but then I realized it was a serious question. I said, of course not. <laughs> Aww. Jimmy then celebrated this psychic victory by dropping six tabs of blotter acid, snorting two speedballs, and railing a Danish model. That's a real nice thing you said about me, Tommy Ramone. <laughs> Dig. Didn't doesn't he have like a history of of like genuinely believing that kind of obviously not as good guitarists are better than him? Like Terry Kath from Chicago, he believed was a better guitarist. Terry Kath did and, rip. I mean, he does, but yeah. he's not Jimi Hendrix. And no. then uh, what's his name from ZZ Top? Billy. Yeah, Billy Gibbons. Yeah, I feel like huh. everybody in the world has a this guitar player who is better than me. Said I was his favorite player. Wasn't Robbie Robertson? Didn't he say Dwayne Allman said he was his favorite guitar player or something. I think Clapton said that. Ah, whatever. Four days after that visit to Manny, Johnny and Dee Dee held their first rehearsal, writing two songs on the very first day they were a band, Johnny told Rolling Stone. <laughs> One was called I Don't Want to Walk Around With You, and the other was called I Don't Want to Get Involved With You. He said, it was very much like I Don't Want to Walk Around With You. Almost the same song. 
<laughs> you know, a very ungenerous read of the Ramones is kind of the whole God give me the confidence of a mediocre white man thing. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong, Walter. Um, Dee Dee and Johnny asked Joey to join them in a band. Dee Dee initially wanted to play guitar and sing while Johnny was going to play guitar and Joey was drumming. I think they probably just knew him from around the way in Forest Hills. Presumably they caught a couple of gigs by Sniper. Um, they invited a guy named Richie Stern to join them on bass, uh, but his lack of talent quickly necessitated that Dee Dee switch to bass, leaving Johnny as their only guitarist. And it was around this time that Dee Dee came up with the name Ramon, inspired by Paul McCartney's use of the pseudonym Paul Ramon during his Silver Beatles days. Jordan, what were the others? Uh, let's see. George was Carl Harrison, which is the worst stage name I've ever heard. He <laughs> named himself after Carl Perkins. Of course he did. Um, the bass player at the time was Stuart Sutcliffe. He, he was an artist. He famously got his money to buy a bass from selling a painting that he did at art school. Uh, so he named himself Stuart DeStall after uh, a painter named DeStall, whose first name escapes me, some mm -hmm. abstract impressionist painter. Uh, and then John was just uh, Long John, as in Long John and the Silver Beetles, or Long John Silver Terrible. and the Beatles. Their name really, in those in those years, was a, was a pirate. Just song. awful, awful stuff. Dee uh, Dee convinced the others that this yeah. should be the name of their group and their pseudonyms as well. Uh, Tommy was older than the rest of them. He was Johnny's pal from their high school band, but you know, obviously it already had some... Uh, uh, I think he was like a year or two older. He'd obviously had professional experience already. Um, and he basically just kind of came in to like manage them and sort of like watch over their shoulder and stuff. Uh, and what, what happened was that uh, Dee Dee realized he couldn't play bass and sing at the same, same time, which happens to the best of us. Can you? Uh, the, the few times I had to play in World's Greatest playing bass, I really dumbed everything down. I can sort of get away with it like punk style but not like getty lee when did you have to play because i was the, i was the bassist in world's greatest detective i know you were folks. uh I, we when, had to do did, uh, uh probably one show before you and one during we were playing um footlight probably our worst day because everybody else had been at the beach and they all showed up sh wasted uh and i was playing bass and oh, singing yeah. so not a great performance <laughs> Uh, Joey was tapped as singer and then he realized he couldn't drum and sing at the same time. Uh, and so they started the process of auditioning a new drummer. And basically, even though Tommy was not actually a drummer, he would spend so much time during these audition processes that he had to just like getting up and going. They, they basically said that everyone was, um, playing too much because this was sort of the, the heavy metal phase. So I imagine that they were getting a lot of wannabe John Bottoms and 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 uh, 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 Bill Wards and just coming in and playing too many fills. And Tommy just spent so much time getting on the kit, just going, no, it's just... That uh, they were like, why don't you just uh, do that for real and for always? And he did. Well, no, for like five years. <laughs> yeah, he's really fascinating. Um, he's He's such a quiet he's like the garth hudson of this band like the quiet genius mm. who like spent so much time kind of behind the scenes and stuff and when you watch him play you know he plays so delicately that's why i thought of the, the strokes thing because it's just like this quiet almost drum machine like sort of pulse under uh, he doesn't play like uh you know like a keith moon guy or or i'm trying to think of other like proto-punk drummers like um 
I don't know, friggin' uh, Stuart Copeland or one of those chuds. Um, Somebody with their whole body. Yeah, yeah. Just He's just like, I'm going to be... I mean, I think a lot of it was just being like, these are so fast. I have to put so... I cannot bash away at this. Uh, Didi would, however, remain grandfathered into the position of counting off all the songs live. And I have always wondered if they simply all knew the tempos already <laughs> and just were like, okay, this is how fast the song goes. Because he, there's no way he's actually counting off the tempos of the songs. <laughs> I almost wonder if he didn't even if, if that was just to signal that the song was beginning. Yes, I, I have didn't to even so. it didn't even occur yeah. to them that that was actually supposed to serve a function. Right. The band's nascent sound at this point was reminiscent of the fifties and early sixties bands that they'd all grown up with, but with all of the possible frills shaved off. Uh, Johnny, I love this so much. Johnny at some point committed to only playing downstrokes. <laughs> um, now, is that for ease, or did he just like how he sounded? No, I in my experience, it it actually is a more mechanic reliable sound, and and it also helps give kind of forward propulsion because if you're playing your sort of conventional alternate picking, the tendency that I found at least is to almost make it swing a little bit anymore because they're uneven, right? You have a, mm. a generally speaking, you have a harder downstroke and then a softer upstroke, and that can give this give your even if you're playing eighth notes, it's still going to give it some level of of unevenness that's going to suggest a swing or a pulse. Whereas if you want something that is just a jackhammer, <laughs> you want downstrokes. And Johnny, I love this. Johnny uh, learned, perfected this by playing along with uh, Led Zeppelin's communication breakdown, which is like often thought of as kind of the Ur text for like hardcore punk that just playing that over and over and over again with only downstrokes. That makes so much sense. Wow. Uh, the band's producer at the time, a guy named Craig Leon, gave a really illuminating quote to The Guardian about the band's sound in 2016. He said, They were returned to streamlined, minimal rock with a strong pop element. They liked Herman's Hermits and the Bay City Rollers as much as the Stooges. They were also very influenced by comic books and pop culture. Remember Superman in the Bizarro World, where everyone was the antithesis of their Earth-like counterparts? The Ramones were the Bizarro World Beatles. That's so perfect. Uh, CBG's associate, colleague, Richard Hell, said in the same article, Tommy was the conceptualist adding that Dee Dee auditioned for the band he was playing in, television, because they, quote, needed someone who could play a C chord. <laughs> he continued, Dee Dee wrote outrageous, timeless compositions. Johnny came up with that driving, monotonous guitar. And Joey had the sweet voice and that whole mutant vibe. And Sire Records head Seymour Stein, the guy who would end up signing the band, put it a little more succinctly to the New York Times, Joey was so sweet. The songs he wrote were so tender. Dee Dee was Dee Dee. Tommy was the brains. And Johnny was the Paul McCartney of the group. He was the one that held the band together. But I would also like to add, he also crushed Joey's heart when he got with his girlfriend, Linda. Which I forget if we'll talk about later. We will. Um, Johnny was a real piece of shit. Let's, yeah. just, let's not mince words there. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry and, he was. And, and he also kicked Marky Ramon out of the band when he had a drinking problem. If I believe he did. Yeah. I mean, Johnny was a lifetime teetotaler, uh, not a druggie. His choice, his drug of choice was violence. 
How how did he die? Cancer. Uh, Bad cancer. Like, it spread to, like, everything by the end. I think it was, like, one of your more standard issue cancers. And then they, there's literally a quote in, like, this Rolling Stone article that was, like, months later, he was informed by doctors that the cancer had spread to his lungs, stomach, bones, and blood. Or, like, whatever, just, like... Jesus Christ. Yeah. Didi recounted in his autobiography, Poison Heart, I think Joey wrote like me. I don't think he knew anything about guitar chords or the verse or the chorus and intro. Somehow he just banged out these songs on two strings of a Yamaha acoustic guitar, and then Johnny Ramone would struggle his best to interpret it. Johnny would show me the bass parts to my own songs because I had no idea how they went. Tommy Ramone wrote, I want to be your boyfriend, and we could have made a million dollars on it because the Bay City Rollers wanted to do it. That's amazing. See, I find that really impressive people who can't really play an instrument but can just write songs and need to have so like that's what jim morrison used to do he would just like kind of sit and tap his foot and start kind of free associating with his verses and kind of find the melody i find that harder than sitting down and finding chord structures and then working out something that would go along with it that's really impressive to me um yeah i mean you know jim morrison i know i know may, may have been a cia plant and yeah uh, yeah his dad started the vietnam war sure did sure did and this book i'm reading the weird weird dream weird echoes in the canyon or whatever oh that's a great book it's an incredible um, book. david mcgowan yep Uh, incredible book and and really actually aside from sort of the obvious thing which is like yes the entirety of laurel canyon was uh all of those luminaries with like basically the exception of neil young everyone was descended from military family in many cases people people who were still working in the mm-hmm. military, and also there was a giant military research facility in Laurel Canyon. Um, but that yeah. guy made the very interesting point that um, all of these bands, uh, and I'll, I'll get back to this with Jim Morrison. He was like, "Isn't it astounding how all of these bands came out with all of this iconic material within like two months of becoming bands, and then never ascended to those same ranks again? Almost as if uh, there was no reason for them to continue once their work had been done." So, yeah, I mean, everything that anyone says about Jim Morrison actually composing anything must be taken with a grain of salt. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd like to add, so his dad was a uh, a rear admiral in the Navy, yeah. and the Vietnam War was generally said to have begun after the Gulf of Tonkin incident in mid-1965, which involved the ship that Jim Morrison's dad was uh, in command of getting in some kind of... Uh, Allegedly, it was fired upon which is like yeah. an in, just in and yeah i don't think they were able to ever find any actual documentation of it uh it was posited as a false flag that may have not even had the benefit of having a flag it may have just been a bold-faced lie to the american public and that folks is why punk is better <laughs> because it was made by a bunch of gross misfits from queens not the sons of the american aristocracy so wait i i just to really spell it out for me like i'm a five-year-old go on you said that these bands never match the heights that they reached like two months after forming almost as if they never needed to why would that be well or or that their songs weren't actually written by them i mean that's the other thing like obviously the birds didn't do anything except for sing on their debut records and they most of these bands were supposedly astonishingly terrible live so that beggars the question like well if you were so bad live and you never you know, weren't able to sustain a career for longer than four years. How did you write all of those supposedly iconic and immortal songs 
without having any demonstrable talent, you know? What would, I'm sorry, I love this stuff so much. And I read this book years ago. I thought I, I was the one who sent it to you. I guess I didn't. Um, I believe you recommended yeah, it to me, but. Yeah, Dave, Dave McGowan, it's incredible. Yeah. I, what was the purpose of this CIA the, uh, social engineering experiment? The overarching and supposed theory, which is posited by this, is that if we were to believe that the entire summer of love was a psyop, it was that the government ministers of culture, whoever's actually pulling all the levers and what have you, were genuinely alarmed at some of the more radical fringes of the American left, like stuff that was happening specifically in Berkeley, stuff that was happening with like in Detroit with the White Panthers and Mario uh, Salvo stuff like the throw yes. your bodies on the gears yeah, of production. And, that's yeah. Berkeley. And, and so the concluded that one of the easiest ways to sabotage that would be, um, by creating a mostly milquetoast, politics-free youth movement that would be, uh, shall we say, burdened by copious drug use. Um, and, you know, the idea then being that these genuine radicals were actually quite irritated when the hippies started showing up uh, and just, just talking about love and how love will end, you know, everything. And that if you just send all the you know, psychic parts of the uh, love into the universe that'll end the war and all of these like genuine, you know, freaks and yippies and people were being like, no, we have to set fire to things <laughs> like, and they're so, like, no, we're going to elevate the Pentagon. We're all going to join hands around the Pentagon and try yeah. to levitate it. And, and, you know, it's, it can get a little tinfoily at some point, but it is really astonishing once you realize like the, I mean, you have like Van Cortlandt's, like David Crosby is a member of the Van Cortland family, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Interesting theory. I would probably believe it at this point. I mean, it certainly worked, right? Like, the, because the other thing that's interesting to me about it is how if you do subscribe to that theory of the American culture shift, it's also sort of dovetails with uh, the weakening of labor in America. You know, the the sort of Hoffa post-war era is generally thought of the peak of, like, American labor power um, by people who are much more versed in that kind of thing than I was. And that really started to dry up um, almost immediately after Hoffa died. And a lot of that was, of course, due to the feds coming in. But Well, died, disappeared, we should say. Yes, yes. Yeah. A lot of it was, you know, due to all kinds of federal pressure and the FBI and everything. But, yeah, it is very interesting how all of the genuinely... Uh, threatening people uh, were killed or destabilized and all of these supposed radical figures of pop culture like somehow missed getting popped by the DEA for for anything ever <laughs> you know like why did David Crosby never serve any significant time in jail when uh, uh, for all of his various drug offenses in at the peak of the time and Rocky Erickson got institutionalized for 13 years for a joint like shit like that you know the sort of general thing is if all of these scions of American, you know, uh, uh, power were making music and at the forefront of a culture that posed any real actual threat, why weren't they investigated? Why weren't they like, why, how did they operate, do this with supposed impunity? Is it because the music was genuinely pretty milk toast and not actually threatening? Yes. Like when I talked to Buffy St. Marie, she talked about how she actually saw her FBI file, like at one point and like, you know, I'm sure there was none on like like everyone talks about, oh, for what it's worth, like Buffalo Springfield, like the great American protest song, not actually a protest song. 
you know it's about the nightclub closing yeah pandora's box on the sunset yep. strip and the kids were pissed that it was closing and they weren't allowed to stay out late there was yeah. a curfew i mean that was what that that was what they were protesting about yeah so that's all very interesting that's a wonderful useless diversion to the point of this episode well no i mean punk dissatisfaction i think it's all it's all related have you read um Chaos by Tom O'Neill, the book about uh, Charles Manson supposedly being uh, having some connections to the CIA is probably the, the briefest way to put it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's all very interesting. I, well, because there's there's two real wings for that. There's there's one if you want to talk about like, as with any psyop, there's many good there's many angles to come in at it. Like one, the, the, the Weird Dreams of the Canyon book is great for the kind of social engineering aspect. But then if you want to dive even deeper into the MK Ultra stuff, you know, there's whole books that have been written on that. There's a lot of people talking about how Andy Jacobson, yeah, yeah. Uh, about how people might have, um, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was Charles Manson were possibly yeah it's it's very interesting stuff wait well I I don't I, I don't know if I know where you're going with that uh that um both of them might have been uh handled by the MK Ultra apparatus oh yeah that makes sense actually yeah because uh Oswald was stationed somewhere where they were doing the his his early one he was stationed at a fort where they were doing that kind of stuff anyway well, from CIA main control yeah. and Charles Manson to the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> that is the TMI promise right there in one move. Danny Fields, the Ramones co-manager, told the New York Times, the Ramones loved the Bay City Rollers. Dee Dee's favorite band was ABBA. They were trying to be ABBA. They were trying to have an album that would sell six million copies so they could retire for life. Now, you, you hear all these interviews with the band later on you really see how they were pretty naked in their attempt at you know we we, we want to hit we want something that's going to sell and they never really got that i mean they made i would say conservatively 70 percent of their income on like t-shirt sales uh it's probably more tilted towards live performances because i think arturo vega held the t-shirt design and you you get more oh. points if you're the if he negotiated it well but uh yes merch sales for sure it's like Glenn Danzig makes, you know, is kept afloat by Misfits stuff, even though he stole all of it, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, by the time that their heirs, the, the, the Johnny and Joey estate sell their beef, which I think happened recently, uh, they, they sold their publishing rights for 10 mil each. So they were probably doing okay. I, it's, it, it's, it is astounding to me, the number of people who in this from this era who genuinely got into music out of wanting to avoid a real job it's so like, i'm pretty sure in that in please kill me it's where iggy pop talks about going to chicago and hanging out with um like really foundational blues guys and he was like they were not taking this music seriously at all they were drunk and this was better than working for them <laughs> like it's just so like i enjoy that refreshing candor as opposed to like yeah you know, your Bonos or your Jack Whites about like, well, your music can change the world. It's an element advent for social change. Like, yeah, it's fun. But, you know, it used to be a good way to make money. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. 
I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was I talking about? Dynamics. Oh, yeah. Yes. So the dynamic within the band, though, didn't exactly fit into the Beatles mold or ABBA. Um, your front man, Joey, was the the shy, sweet guy. Your guitarist, Johnny, was the jerk, uh, the taskmaster of the band that kept them in shape with uh, rehearsals and um, physical, emotional and vocal abuse. Um, that is not an exaggeration, by the way. I'm not slandering him. Uh, Tommy, the uh, sort of big picture guy overseeing image and and uh industry positioning and Didi, the wild card <laughs> the cat yeah that's my my favorite running the only thing kiss has ever given me is referring to the fourth person in any group of four as <laughs> the cat um yeah Didi would write 20 songs for every one the others turned in while maintaining as powerful of a buzz as he could Tina Weymouth of the Talking Heads recalled to The Guardian one at one show in France, the two bands were booked to play together, and the show fell apart because the Ramones amps 
uh, overloaded the town's power grid. This was in Marseille. Uh, and she said, they came back to the hotel where we had these packets of dry cleaning spot remover. Dee Dee poured the contents into a handkerchief and proceeded to sniff it like it was something delicious. We were appalled. I said, don't you know it's destroying your brain cells? He said, I know, but I just got to get high. And then her immediate postscript to that is, Joey was deeper. He used to do these giant paintings of vegetables. <laughs> I just love that as a non sequitur. Uh, that's, that's a real spinal tap type yeah, of right. thing. Probably the best known example of the rift between the two principal Ramones is the fact that one of their best known songs, The KKK Took My Baby Away, was written by Joey after his childhood sweetheart Linda left him for Johnny. Um, they, they, they were on different ends of the political spectrum, you know, uh, and, and one big thing in this band was after Reagan went to visit, uh, Berlin and, uh, Joey wrote a song called Bonzo Goes to Bitburg, um, because you will perhaps remember that Ronald Reagan starred in Bedtime for Bonzo, uh, alongside, incredible a, reference. alongside a chimp. And Joey was very incensed by this. He was a lifelong Republican whose only quote at the band's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction was God bless the USA and God bless George W. Bush. Um, so they were already at odds there. But then, uh, yeah, Joey uh, lost his his childhood sweetheart to Johnny. To their credit, Johnny and Linda remained married until Johnny's death in 2004. Um, Johnny did not, though he outlived him, Johnny did not attend Joey's funeral, which was in 2001, saying, I wouldn't want him coming to mine. Uh, in, Danny Fields, who managed the band from 75 to 80, told Rolling Stone, in order of monsterliness, Dee Dee was first, <laughs> a genius poet and charming, which is how he got away with his disastrous alcoholic fibbing. Joey was second and Johnny was third. He had to whip four very difficult people, including himself, into shape to make enough money for all of them to retire. That said, Marky would write in his autobiography, Punk Rock Blitzkrieg, we could often hear John pushing and smacking Roxy, his then-girlfriend, around in their hotel room. We would hear her stumbling, bouncing off a thin wall, and then falling onto a bed and shrieking. Danny Fields told Mojo, Dee Dee was terrified of Johnny because Johnny would punch him in the face. It would always be after the show about something like, you did a B major when you should have done a C minor. I'd stand outside the dressing room. Inside, you'd hear glass shattering and bodies slamming into walls. He's like Joe Jackson. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The band's look, which were the uh, leather jackets from the New York City-based manufacturer Shot, uh, ripped blue jeans, Converse, or Ked sneakers and T-shirts, was a little more calculated than it came off, though. Uh, Johnny wrote in his autobiography, Commando, I give Tommy a lot of credit for our look. He explained to me that middle America wasn't going to look good in glitter. Glitter is fine if you're the perfect size for clothes like that, but if you're even five pounds overweight, it looks ridiculous, so it wouldn't be something everyone could relate to. It was a slow process over a period of six months or so, but we got the uniform defined. We figured out it would be jeans, t-shirts, leather jackets, and the tennis shoes, Keds. We wanted every kid to be able to identify with our image. That's like shockingly astute. I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying. Tommy is a legitimately smart, very musical guy. Uh, one of the things that's very interesting that he said to Rolling Stone at one point was, we used block cording as a melodic device, and the harmonics resulting from the distortion of the amplifiers created counter melodies. We used the wall of sound as a melodic rather than a riff form. It was like a song within a song created by a block of chords droning. And that's very interesting because, you know, quick diversion into the, my dummy understanding. Walkery. 
What's that? Wonkery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, in every note, in, in every tone pitch, you have what's called the fundamental and then the overtone series. The fundamental is typically what you can hear and match um, as the the sound, the pitch, you know, uh, that's whatever. But the way that frequencies work is that there are actually many other pitches occurring in relation to that tone. Uh, you can hear this on a piano according to the mathematic relationships that are caused by the uh, actual frequencies in terms of hertz that are occurring. So you can hear this on a piano if you, you know, uh, uh, hit a bunch of C's or different chords and leave the sustain note on. You can actually sometimes identify the uh, upper harmonics of it ringing. And this phenomenon is only amplified, pun intended, by extremely loud instruments. And when people talk about listening to really high volume music and, quote, hearing things that aren't really there, what they're talking about is uh, how you can suddenly start hearing all of these harmonics and upper frequencies of the music that aren't actually present in what you immediately identify as the sound, right? And it's uh, when you're stacking uh, certain intervals, that's only compounded. So when you're playing power chords, which are just a root, fifth, and an octave, and then the bass is doubling that under, all at extremely high volume, you're getting all of those, uh, because the harmonic series moves in fifths is the other thing, um, generally. So uh, that's how the overtone series works. So you're basically recreating with every harmonic chord movement a series of these stacked fifths and it makes the music sound much bigger than it in theory actually is if you were just looking at the notes on staff paper does that make sense yeah i mean that's interesting to me that it just sounds like a lot of things are getting doubled as opposed to yeah which makes it sound thicker in a sense than, yeah that's really fascinating wow yeah and it's interesting i'm sure he got some of that from hendrix because that was part of the reason why hendrix insisted on playing everything as loudly as possible at all times there's a lot of people who are like oh yeah he would have been deaf within five years because even when he was listening to playback of stuff in electric ladyland or these different studios he was listening to it like blasting out of the monitors because that is when you start to hear all of this stuff i mean it's always this is why people that's why music sounds better loud <laughs> like you're getting not, not only the harmonic distortion from like a speaker, from whatever speaker and sound reproduction, you're actually getting like a tube amp or whatever, but the harmonics are interacting in ways that we can't really put a finger on, but still sound better and richer to us. This has been Heigl's Theory Corner. Uh, so from the highfalutin concept of Lydian chromatic and harmonic theory, all the way down to the smeared floors of the Bowery. <laughs> Uh, of all the band linked with the legendary Bowery Dive Bar, CBGB's The Ramones are probably the most fitting with the bar's distinct birthplace of punk brand. Tommy approached me and said, I heard you found this place to play. What's the story? That's Blondie guitarist Chris Stein to The Guardian. So we told them about CBGB. I like to think I was part of them winding up there. The band started playing live by mid-1974, and club owner Hilly Crystal provided an inadvertent slogan for the entire genre of punk rock when he remarked to the band after their very first time at CBGB's in August of 74, no one is going to like you, but I'll have you back. <laughs> it's beautiful. We all need a friend like that. Joey has a distinct memory of entering CBGB's for the first time and noticing the floor was covered with sawdust and dog sh He says in the band's end of the century doc, it was like a minefield. Hilly would later write, they were the most untogether band I'd ever heard. They kept starting and stopping, equipment breaking down and yelling at each other. They'd play for 40 minutes, and 20 of them would just be the band yelling at each other. 
Legs McNeil, who wrote the aforementioned uh, early punk tome, Please Kill Me, felt that they looked like the SS when they walked in with the leather jackets. These guys were not hippies. And of those early performances, he added, you were hit with this blast of noise. You physically recoiled from the shock of it like a huge wind. In the summer of 1975, CBGBs held their own rock festival, including Blondie, which was covered by Rolling Stone. And from that point, the scene started to change. The heyday was basically two years. Yeah, I, you, have, you, had an, you had a point about this early era of CBGBs that also includes Talking Heads, um, suicide, television, suicide. Yeah. I just think it's interesting to me how different all the bands were. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't a lot of overlap in sound. So I wonder if that lack of competition helped contribute to the sense of camaraderie because they were all very much doing their own thing. Patty Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's because there was no monoculture around it at the time and everybody was sort mm. of taking all of the different aspects of, of what made New York music culture uh, and putting them into a blender. You know, you had um, this sort of beat poet things, like the the poetry damaged class, which I would include Richard Hell and um, Patti Smith in that. Television comes from a little bit more of, uh, I don't know, guitar wonkery, like with Richard Lloyd. And, and those guys were serious musos, you know, um, maybe like a little bit more jazzy stuff. And Ramones of the mutant girl pop group, you know. On suicide, I never really got. I, you know, I admittedly I'm not huge on suicide, but I think they were. I think they were a lot older than everyone else too, and yeah. were kind of coming at from maybe some more kraut rock influence stuff than um than actual guitar like rock. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting petri dish, and it's a great testament to what happens when um people kind of stick to their guns and work on a sound rather than trying to compete or fit in. Ramones manager Danny Fields, a Warhol associate and downtown scenester who had recently introduced David Bowie to Iggy Pop, who was sleeping on his couch at this time, had been initially reluctant to catch the Ramones in action at CBGB's because he assumed that they were a Spanish flamenco band (laughs) based on their name. (laughs) So wrong in so many ways, I can't even begin to (laughs) But he was soon very glad that he made the trip downtown and he asked to be their manager. And the band responded by telling him they needed a few thousand dollars for a drum kit. If he could come up with that, he had the job. Where did Danny Fields fit in all this, Jordan? He's interesting to me because taking it all the way back to the Beatles, again, the Beatles are sort of the unsung heroes of, uh, of the Ramones episode. He co-founded and edited a magazine in the 60s called Date Book, which despite its very kind of middle-of-the-road teeny bop title fashioned itself as a progressive teen magazine and they're famous for publishing John Lennon's were bigger than Jesus interview in 1966, which uh, led to a massive uproar in the United States, particularly in the Bible belt, which indirectly led to the Beatles retirement from touring because on that tour, they were uh, threatened by the Ku Klux Klan and other lone nuts. They're uh, they're playing. They found bullets in the fuselage uh, people, um, through firecrackers in the middle of their performances and you'd see footage of the band all looking at one another thinking that you know one of the other got shot or something uh and led to their decision to uh retire from touring after that tour in august 1966 and supposedly and it's been a while since i read up on this but um this interview sowed the seeds of hate in the heart of john lennon's future assassin 
Mark David Chapman, who mm. was uh, very religious and felt that this was a blasphemous statement by John Lennon. So um, Danny Fields, indirectly. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> the Ramones recorded a demo in September 75 featuring the songs Judy is a Punk and I Want to Be Your Boyfriend, which they shopped to labels. The producer Craig Leon, who had seen them perform in the summer of 75, brought that demo to the attention of Sire Records president Seymour Stein. Uh, Seymour took some persuading by both his wife uh, and Craig Leon, um, and then their manager, Danny Fields, uh, the aforementioned John Lennon killer, uh, arranged a rehearsal audition at SIR Studios, of which Stein recalled to the New York Times, in 20 minutes, they had gone through about 20 songs. I fell in love with them. I could release a lot of singles from these guys. Yeah, I know. Uh, drummer Tommy Ramone recalled, Craig Leon is the one who got us signed, single-handed. He risked his career to get us on the label. Uh, Sire was considered for a long time the most uh, authentically cool of the majors. Is that not correct, Jordan? I know they had uh, talking heads at this point. They had pretenders, and they would later sign Madonna. Yeah, my main... Um... I mean, aside from those artists you just mentioned, thought on on the Steins and the Sire Records was wasn't Seymour's wife uh, later murdered? Yes, you uh, you put that in here, and I took it out because I thought it was weird. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh. If if there's a murder, I'm gonna put it in. I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I think her assistant murdered her, and she claimed that it was the it was the abuse excuse. Basically, said that she was just uh, incredibly abusive, and she snapped one day, if I recall. I'm doing that from memory, but. Hmm. Did I really put that in here? Yeah. Oh, wow. But yeah, Sire. Who else did Sire's? Oh, they had Dead Boys, The Undertones, famous for... Um, oh, I forgot about Dead Boys in that early wave of CBGB's bands. Caught with the meat in your mouth. Oh, yeah. Undertones, oh, Teenage Cure, Kicks. Depeche Mode, The Smiths. Oh, they, had a, they had a big 80s. Good God. Yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen. Ministry. Tragically hip. <laughs> Good for Sire. All right, now on to a section that you have titled Hey Ho Studio Notes. Uh, for years, I just assumed that the Ramones recorded their debut in a pistry tailhole, not unlike CBGB's famous bathrooms that you so indelibly described moments ago, but they actually recorded their debut at Plaza Sound Studios at 55 West 50th Street on the seventh floor of the Art Deco masterpiece that housed Radio City Music Hall. So, in other words, they recorded their record mere feet from the Rockettes' home stage, which is insane to me. That's the least punk vision that I can possibly imagine. America, baby. Yes. Uh, sound engineer Rob Freeman paints a vivid picture of entering the studio. He said the trek up to Plaza Sound Studios followed its usual path, an escape into a warm refuge of Radio City Music Hall through the stage door entrance, a slow creep up the private elevator to the sixth floor, trudge up another flight and a half of stairs and the seventh floor which housed the recording studio was suspended on steel springs and cork in order to acoustically isolate it from the great hall below hence no elevator all the way up a dizzying meander through a labyrinth of battleship gray corridors a delightful pass by the rockets dance rehearsal rooms filled with the usual blend of perfume and sweat and thunderous commotion of a hundred tap dancing showgirls and finally, a disappearance through the black, unmarked door that led to the sanctuary of Plaza Sound's control room. That's a hell of a run-on. Just imagining hauling up that, um, like, Marshall stacks. <laughs> Jesus. So, to recap, 
About two years after the Ramones formed, they found themselves recording above Radio City Music Hall for Sire Records. That is insane. Uh, Sire Records, though, they didn't have a lot of money on the line. They ponied up $6,400 to record the Ramones' debut, which was insultingly small even at that time. Uh, recall, this was the most bloated time in record industry history when splashing out eh, half a million dollars wasn't that uncommon, which these days is probably close to like three and a half, four million. And three years later, Fleetwood Mac would blow over a million dollars on Tusk. So um, contrast Tusk and a million dollars with Ramon's debut for $6,400. Might not have even been that much. <laughs> Craig Leon disputed that figure uh, in a book called The Downtown Pop Underground, telling Kembrew McLeod, incredible name, we never paid the full studio rate. It was actually cheaper than $6,000. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they recorded the album in basically a week, three days for the instrumentals, four for vocals. There were two reasons for this. One was aesthetic. The other was practical, or at least financial. Um, the band was paying for studio time out of their own advance, so they reasoned that if they worked fast, they'd be able to pocket the rest of the money. Johnny Ramone wrote in his autobiography, We were rushing through it because I was conscious that whatever money we wanted was ours, and that we just had to pay all this money back. So whenever the engineer would ask me how I felt about a take, I'd say, Oh, that's the best I'd ever played it. I don't think I'll ever play it that well again. And we'd move <laughs> on. They also recorded at night, which is the time-honored way of getting cheap studio time, which I have never done because I have a day job, and I like sleeping. Uh, what was I going to say? It helped that they were somewhat prepared. Uh, Johnny Ramone told Rolling Stone, we had the songs for the first three albums when we did the first one. We already had 30 to 35 songs, and we recorded them in the chronological order that we wrote them. I didn't want the second album to be a letdown by picking through all the best songs for the first album and using the lesser songs for these second albums. That's so good. That's it's so smart, good. and that's why the yeah. first four records are the best, and then it gets spotty. Uh, Craig Leon told the New York Times, Until we made the record, they literally hadn't rehearsed how to end songs. Which I, by which I assume they meant because their live shows were just one after the other, after the other, after the other. They were probably unacquainted with letting stuff ring when you're recording live to give it long enough of a tail to let everything fade out, which I did the first time I was in a professional recording studio. I was just immediately talked over like before the last cymbal hit rang out. I was like, I don't know. How do we feel about that? One? <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> you just ruined that take. So shut up next time. Part of the recording process dated back to their demo and their love of the Beatles. When we first went into the studio to cut our demo, we're coming up with unique recording ideas for the time. Tommy Ramone recalled to tape op. We decided to go backwards a bit. We decided to use hard left and right ping pong stereo effects like we heard on old Beatles records. We wanted to make an album that sounded different. We ended up transferring those experiments onto our first album. Quick sidebar, unprompted, about delay. Jordan, what do you know about delay? I know that this episode probably will be. <laughs> uh, so... The earliest delay, delay is just, the term just re refers to reproducing an audio signal after, usually after the original input signal happens. And it used to be accomplished by uh, running two tape decks um, with one set to a slightly lower speed than the other one. And that is what's called, uh, I mean, you can run them both at the same time for kind of a chorusing effect or very, very few milliseconds off, but... 
running it to the point where it starts to get noticeable is when you get the shortest form of delay, which is called slapback. And that's what you hear on the early rockabilly records. That's what you hear on um, Sun, all those, the part of the huge part of the Sun sound is slapback delay because you're essentially getting the uh, uh, um, an echo, a um, double of what is originally being heard really, really quickly after it, almost imperceptibly fast sometimes. The problem is, is that running those with tape decks, you only got so much time out of it. So by the mid 70s, uh, you started to have a couple different forms of mechanical delay. Um, there's the Binson Echo Rec, which used a, a, a rotating metal drum to produce delay. That's on a lot of the early Pink Floyd records. Then you get stuff like the uh, Echoplex, which is another tape delay thing. Um, I forget when the the Roland Space Echo comes into vogue, but um, a lot of that pioneering work was not just done by the psychedelic bands and and engineers at Abbey Road and stuff, but by uh, Jamaican musicians too. I mean, a lot of dub records and stuff oh, wow. is is really um, where you hear a lot of that like uh, sort of delay. The Space Echo in particular is really good at producing that delay that sort of trails off into the distance because it's running on tape, so it's actually just. The signal is decaying the longer it goes on. Was there a reason why, I mean, was it just an, an aesthetic that these artists liked? Or for these Jamaican artists, was there some type of reason why that was chosen? Was it the arrangements were so sparse that they just wanted something to fill I'm it sure up? I'm sure that had part of it. Yeah, yes, I will say that. Also, when you're really high, it sounds super cool. <laughs> you know, have you thought of that? I did think of that, I <laughs> say, yeah. Well, their homage to the Beatles went further than engineering. Uh, the Beatles famously recorded their 1963 debut, Please Please Me, in a single marathon session in an effort to capture the thrill of their sets at Liverpool's Cavern Club. Uh, in fact, the Beatles' debut was very nearly a live album at the Cavern Club until they went up there, George Martin, the Beatles producer, went up there and realized there was no way in hell they could get a good recording in what was basically a wine cellar. Uh, the Ramones wanted to take the same approach and ensure that their debut had the same excitement and spontaneity of their legendary live sets at CBGB's. So to achieve this, the band essentially just performed their stage show. Johnny said, we'd record the songs in the same order that we played them in our live set at the time, which was a trick they'd repeat for their next two albums, Leave Home and Rocket to Russia. Producer Craig Leon even considered making the record a single track with no breaks in between songs, which is awesome. It's a technique he employed to a smaller extent between I don't want to walk around with you and today your love, tomorrow the world. It's worth noting that at 29 minutes and four seconds, the Ramones debut is a good bit longer of some of their early shows. It wasn't unusual for a Ramones set to clock in around eh, about 20 minutes or so when they were cutting their teeth at CBGB's or Max's Kansas City in downtown New York City. When a longer concert was necessary, they simply took it from the top and repeated their set list. We never did that. What? We always had a lot of songs. We never had encores. Nobody ever asked. Uh, the miking setup in the room was basically live. They used Marshall amps for the guitars, Ampeg SVTs for the bass. Uh, this is Tommy and Tape Op. He said, we mic the Marshalls with SM57s up close. And that is, by the way, still just the entry-level mic that you see on stage in every single club in the world, I guarantee you. It's what they're putting on the guitar cabs. Um, for the bass, we mic'd up with Electro Voice RE20s. Those are the gray cylindrical mics that you will see many podcasters using if they are not using the one Jordan IR, which is the Shure SM7B. Um, and then 
other than the stuff that's on the drums, uh, some Sennheisers for the toms, Sony's on the hi-hat, the most expensive stuff that they were using that isn't, the only thing that would be out of reach for someone is the Neumanns, uh, the um, U87s, which are very famously uh, expensive, uh, precision-engineered German tube mics. But, uh, you know, he was still, still saying the guitar sound that they did was uh, just cranking the amp and then close mic, far mic, blend. Guitar in the right channel, bass on the left, drums and vocals in the center channel. Joey doubled his vocal lines um, and they pressed whoever who was in the studio and who could carry a tune into doing backing vocals. And that's it. <laughs> um, I just love the fact that this thing was made with, uh, and you know, they they had nice outboard equipment and preamps and stuff, but I, this, this is basically made with the equipment that you would probably use to, you know, mic a live band in a just a few steps up from a dive bar. <laughs> you wouldn't use the Neumanns, the U87, before any uh, dorks come at me. But man, SM SM57 on the guitar cab and uh, and on the snare is like crucial DIY punk recording. Anyway, I digress. Get in the weeds. I'm getting the Jordan's putting out the hook. Beato. Uh, oh, I didn't hit us with a Beato when I was doing my harmonic spiel earlier. Uh, Leon told the Vinyl Factory, capturing the energy of the live shows was quite important. But if you jump to the conclusion that the sound of the recording was just the sound of the band live, you would be mistaken. The album is quite layered and structured. There are several songs and there's much, much more than one guitar. There's a triangle on I Want to Be Your Boyfriend, which I love that he pointed to as an example of how layered it was. Uh, the overdubbed bomb sound on Havana Affair was achieved by tuning a tom-tom drum very low and then holding it under a piano uh, and then someone holding the sustain pedal on the piano down. So when you hit the drum, it would filter up and ring through the piano, creating this sort of ambient ringing sound. Some other hilarious random quotes about recording. Engineer Rob Freeman. When you asked them what key they were in, or could you tune that up a little bit, they just weren't interested. If you asked them to play it up an octave, they would just play it exactly the same way. Seymour Stein in The Lifestyles of the Ramones. I can remember going to the studio and the Ramones had got there three hours earlier. I said, how's everything going? And Johnny says to me, things aren't going so great. We only got seven tracks down. <laughs> Craig Leon. We set up a metronome with a flashing light in Tommy's booth in the center because we couldn't get a click track to go that fast. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Let's go uh, very briefly, song by song on the track list. We got to start talking about one of the all-time best album openers ever. Best side one track ones. Blitzkrieg bop. Mm. Frantic floor on the floor rhythm. Slicing power chords. An immensely shoutable refrain. It's a cornerstone of punk, which is surprising considering the song has its roots in the most treacly pop crap ever. So sickeningly sweet that even I don't like it. Johnny would say of the Ramones' early days, I think we wanted to be a bubblegum band. At one point, the Bay City Rollers were becoming popular. They had written Saturday Night, and we sat down and said, we have to write a song with a chant in it, like they have. The Bay City Rollers have S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y night. Yeah. Uh, So that planted the seed, but they needed something with a little more oomph. Tommy Ramone explained, I wanted a rallying song. I was trying to think of a good rally when I remember the Rolling Stones version of Rufus Thomas's Walking the Dog, where Mick Jagger sings the line, Hi ho, nipped her toes, presumably with a little more swagger than I just delivered. <laughs> the line morphed into Hey ho, let's go. And speaking of bubblegum, we have to talk about Beat on the Brat, which sounds to my ears like a sadistic rewrite of Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy by Ohio Express. Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy and I feel like I'm loving you. Love you such a sweet thing, good enough to Tell me. 
the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I believe you're on to that. Uh, Dee yeah. told Michael Hill in 2001 that the, the when they were first starting out, he just said the Ramones started trying to figure out songs from records, and we couldn't. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Yummy, Yummy, Yummy by the Ohio Express, or Can't You Hear My Heartbeat by Herman's Hermits. Oh. Uh, Joey would say that the idea for this song came from when he lived in Forest Hills Birchwood Towers Complex with his mom and brother. He said it was a middle-class neighborhood with a lot of rich, snooty women who had horrible brat kids who were obnoxious. <laughs> There was a playground with women sitting around and a kid screaming. A horrible kid just running around rampant with no discipline whatsoever. The kind of kid you just want to kill. You know, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Just came out. I just wanted to kill him. Uh, Dee Dee has a slightly different but no less violent memory of the song's origins. Joey saw some mother going after a kid with a bat in his lobby and wrote a song about it. Should be said, though, that Dee Dee is... Re- resolutely referred to by everyone as sort of the ultimate unreliable narrator. So, grain of salt. Mountain of salt with everything he said. Uh, mm. I want to be your boyfriend, man. Said, hey, little girl. It's a good song. I want to be your boyfriend. The band's second single nailed their power pop song so perfectly that DD has claimed that the Bay City Rollers wanted to cover it. I believe so did uh, Tommy at one point. Um, the songs Renette's Shangri-La's girl group style vocals came courtesy of producer Craig Leon and engineer Rob Freeman. Uh, Freeman said, we tried with Doug, Dee Dee, and he'd get spit all over the microphone. He was so aggressive. <laughs> After a lot of torture, it was supposed to be sweet. We did it. Joe Ramone's brother, Mickey Lee, also performed backing vocal duties on the song, as well as Blitzkrieg Bop and Judy is a Punk. None of these contributions were noted on the album's original liner notes, however, and when a very disappointed Mickey asked why, Johnny Ramone had a very simple explanation. We didn't want people to get confused with who's in the band or who's not. It's our first album, you know. We didn't want people to get confused. Fair. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this earlier. My musical interests really overlap with uh, the Ramones in a yeah. very big way, from cool groups like the Shangri-Las to the Beatles to all my catchy bubblegum crap and British Invasion stuff. Yeah, I th- I think the only reason I don't like it is that it's just not pretty enough for me. Much like Joey. That's why I wasn't in Sniper. <laughs> uh, not much to say about Chainsaw than the fact that it is a tr- fact a tribute to Toby Hoopy's groundbreaking masterpiece of slash exploitation, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My only th- note about this song is how incredible it is that Joey pronounces massacre as massacre. Uh, oh, it's like um. In, in order like, to uh, force the Alice's rhyme restaurant. with, yeah. Well, he's trying to force the rhyme with me, <laughs> so he <laughs> pronounces it the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hilarious, incredible. No notes. Jordan, tell us about now. I want to sniff some glue. Yeah, this is a funny one. Uh, supposedly, in 1976, the west of Scotland was facing an epidemic in glue sniffing, with a few deaths as a result, and. An MP from nearby Coatbridge in that area, a guy named James Dempy, called for a ban on selling solvent products to anyone under the age of 18. And that summer, one angry parent contacted him, mentioning that their son had the debut Ramones record. So on August 19th, 1976, a little over a month after the Ramones played London for the very first time, on America's Bicentennial, I might add, a headline of Glasgow's Evening Times read, Glue Sniff Disc Shocker. <laughs> and that front page is now part of an exhibit in Berlin's Ramon Museum, which I've actually been to. It's very cool. Oh, nice. 
Didi's response to the controversy supposedly went, damn, it's a good thing we split from these assholes 200 years ago. I hope they really don't think we sniff glue. I quit when I was about eight. Incredible. Uh, I don't want to go down to the basement. Another supposedly horror-inspired one about how dumb it is if you're in a horror movie to do that. Um, yeah. Loudmouth. Uh, Tommy did a, an incredible bit of time. I knew a kid in, in Brooklyn who used to email venues as his own fake manager. Um, That's good. Yeah. Uh, when you say a kid, do you mean... It wasn't anyone you knew. Sorry. Oh, uh, it wasn't you? No, it was not me. No, I have ethics. Um, to my detriment. Uh, I should say principles. Uh, but so Tommy would conduct the band's business correspondence from under his Christian name, Tomas Erdely or Erdely. I don't know something Hungarian under Loudmouth Productions letterhead. So people did not know that they were getting mail from the actual Ramones drummer. They assumed it was like their actual management company. Hilarious, great scam, Havana affair. Uh, probably a combination of uh, the group growing up and experiencing the Bay of Pigs and Cuba Missile Crisis would be my my bet from that. Nothing else interesting That's to say right. about it. Yeah. Uh, listen to my heart. Didi said in his autobiography that when he showed the song to the band, Tommy said, oh, it doesn't have a middle eight in it. So I just wrote the middle eight on the spot, also known as a bridge. Tommy couldn't believe I could do that. Do you know that the Beatles, again, I always take it back to the Beatles, in this episode, it actually works, though, because the Ramones were such big Beatles fans. They were actually the ones who popularized the phrase middle eight as a colloquial term for a bridge because they never made the connection that it meant the middle eight bars of a song. So they just started <laughs> calling all their bridges the middle eight, regardless of how many bars it had. And that always cracked George Martin up. Yeah, I have to assume that it comes from the 32 bar form that like all of um, Tin Pan Alley falls into the A-A-B-A. Yeah. Um, oh, you got to do this one, 53rd and 3rd. Oh, yeah, classic one. The autobiographical time. Oh, well, it's not autobiographical because it's about a, a Marine who returns from Vietnam and uh, turns to male prostitution to support his drug habit and then murders one of his Johns to prove that he isn't gay. Uh, so not explicitly about Didi, but Didi did, uh, he and, and he sings lead vocals on it terribly. Um, he, people often said that, well, I, I'm trying to think how to sensibly phrase this. Um, there's a 1987 book called Addict, Out of the Dark and Into the Light. And Dee Dee spoke, uh, delivered an interview about his, uh, journey into drug addiction and sex work, um, for this book. And incredibly, the audio from that interview is actually online. Uh, it's hosted at intervention.org and you can actually go and listen to the full 23 minutes or whatever, um, where he talks about this and, and it's, it's grim. I mean, like I said, he mentioned, he talks about hitchhiking to uh, LA and picking up his drug habit there. And the really harrowing part of it is him talking about uh, how he wasn't gay and didn't like having sex with men, but had to. Um, the area at the intersection of 53rd street and third Avenue was a section of what was known as the loop. And it was basically uh a hotbed for male prostitution. There was a lot of, it was a, uh, gay, a lot of gay nightclubs in that area too. And it basically survived up until the early nineties when, uh, the NYPD were sort of, uh, putting increased pressure on the gay community in New York because of the fallout of the, and continuing AIDS mm. crisis at that time. And basically just, you know, swept it night after night after night and sort of ruined that area. Fascinatingly enough, 
it's the same intersection mentioned by Rod Stewart in the song from the same year, Killing of Georgie. That's a devastating song. You know that song? I don't. Was it off Gasoline Alley? No, no, it can't have been. It's, no, no it's, it's, it's a lot later. No, I don't listen to anything like... past the early stuff, really. You should check it out. It's like shockingly progressive, especially for Rod Stewart. Yeah, it's it's this lengthy ballad kind of mourning the death of, I, I actually don't know if it's based on, on somebody he actually knew, but a, um, a gay man who was killed in a street fight. I forget. Do you like Rod Stewart or is he? I do. Uh, Jeff Beck. I mean, early. I like. I like Jeff Beck group whips. Obviously, the faces are one of the greatest rock and roll bands ever. And then the early, like the first two or three. Well, I don't really like Gasoline Alley that much, but those first two back to back Rod records that he made with other members of the faces, uh, Never Dull Moment and um, Every Picture Tells a Story. Fantastic records. Hilarious records too. There are so many errors on those records. They are so. damn funny to me i like it's i i just it 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 would annoy me in almost any other circumstances but just knowing that motley crew of idiots just like drunk as hacking their way through this stuff is so funny dude there's one where he audibly misses his vocal cue or goes in to do it too early and they kept him like he goes up to the you hear him go (gasps) and then packs Uh, off the mic there's another one on the ballad it feels like a long time seems like a long time where ron wood is playing some of the worst bass guitar i've ever heard committed to record he hits so many clams and just and rather than trying to play fewer clams just continues to play more notes perhaps in the hope that he will stumble onto the correct note at some point truly incredible stuff great songs great records what were we talking about? Uh, back back to the, the killing of Georgie. Oh, According yeah. to a May 1995 issue of Mojo, Rod Stewart explained, that was a true story about a gay friend of the Faces. He was especially close to me and Faces pianist Ian McLaughlin, but he was knifed or shot. I can't remember which. That was a song I wrote totally on my own over the chord of open E. Um, yeah, good song. Very good song. Hmm. Touching. Uh, Let's Dance. Just a great cover. Uh, original was a number four hit, 1962, for Chris Montez. Um, apparently extremely beloved by English glam rockers. Slade, I almost pronounced it Slade. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be your Halloween cover band. <laughs> glam versions of Sade songs. Yeah. Uh, T-Rex and David Bowie all covered that song at different Bowie? points. Did that? That's that's not like the MTV song of the same name. It's he covered the na 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 na. Let's dance. Hold please. Oh, it's, it's, it's ungoogleable because all I'm gonna get is the big song. Oh, it was uh, it was Tina Turner and David Bowie on uh, Tina Live in Europe. Wait, I I need. To, I'm listening to a snippet of this to make sure it was an interpolation. Did, they did Let's Dance, but then they broke into the other Let's Dance. Oh, that's cool. Well, not like I did a. 15 hour documentary bio series. <laughs> I was going to say, that's Bowie. why that one hit you so hard. Yeah. You were I know, like, there's really... a bully blind spot. It's a stone I left unturned. And then, all right. And then the, I believe the last track on the album, I Don't Want to Walk Around With You, which, as we mentioned, one of the first Ramon songs ever written. Oh, wait. No, this is the last song. Oh, Heigl, you take this one. No, you do it. You son of a bitch. Okay. All right. Today, your love, tomorrow, the world. A famous Hitler uh, quote, paraphrased quote. Early punks, man, really into Nazi shit. It's weird. Yeah. 
why was there some kind of i my my theory is that it was just enough in their past to, to be, be shocking like, yeah to be like oh. transgressive without them actually being that um affected by it you know um even though probably what tommy had to say about it yeah dude i mean and it was easy to shock people with that stuff too it, and you know but yeah, freaking um, one of the Stooges collected it, and he showed up at their man at someone's wedding wearing like a full length SS jacket. <laughs> it's like, what the? Oh wow, is wrong with you? Well, Seymour Stein begged the Ramones not to include the reference to a Nazi in the opening verse. Well, I'm a stormtrooper in a stupor. Yes, I'm a Nazi Stasi. <laughs> You know, I fight for the fatherland. But they refused to change it because they felt like they would be compromising themselves on day one of their career. Uh, this Nazi imagery was commented upon by Robert Criscow in his otherwise very glowing review of the Ramones debut. I love this record. Love it. Even though these boys flirt with images of brutality, Nazis especially, in much the same way Midnight Rambler by the Rolling Stones flirts with rape. This makes me uneasy. But my theory has always been that good rock and roll should damn well make you uneasy. Okay, man. <laughs> uh, the original cover concept for Ramones' debut was meant to be yet another nod to the Beatles, specifically the cover of the Beatles' 1964 American debut, Meet the Beatles, which was a moody black-and-white photo of their faces shot by English photographer Robert Freeman, whose wife Sonny, a German-born model, would have an affair with John Lennon, possibly inspiring the lyrics to Norwegian Wood. See? It's all... It all comes together. <laughs> the Ramones label, Sire Records, spent $2,000 or nearly a third of the album's recording cost on a photo shoot to mimic the Meet the Beatles cover, but the results were deemed unsatisfactory and the idea was scrapped. So the band desperately searched for an alternative on the cheap, and their thoughts turned to Roberta Bailey, who's a staff photographer for Punk Magazine, who they'd recently worked with for an article, and I think she was also the door person at CBGB's, if I recall. And ultimately, they opted for one of the shots from her session instead. Good. Uh, she would recall in the book, I Slept with Joey Ramone by the aforementioned brother, uh, Mickey Lee. That photo that ultimately became the album cover was just one of those perfect moments when everything came together. The frame before it, the frame after it aren't that great. But for that one moment, everyone looked right. Exactly like the Ramones. Then, when I was changing film, Dee Dee stepped in dog <laughs> <laughs> Legs McNeil was also <laughs> present for the occasion, and he remembered this moment distinctly. If you look at the contact sheet, you see Dee Dee trying to wipe the dog <laughs> off his sneaker with a stick. Then he chases everyone with a dog <laughs> stick, and the photo session is over. <laughs> what a great series of vignettes. Imagine that set to, like, me and Julio down by the schoolyard, a la World Tenenbaums. <laughs> Uh, Johnny Ramone never thought that the label would use that particular photo because, as eagle-eyed viewers, more eagle-eyed than the record label, have been noticing for decades now, he is slyly slipping the bird uh, with his hands in his belt loop. Uh, he said, I was really trying to sneak it in. I felt like I got one over on everyone, but I guess they just expected it from us. Sire Records did go for the photo, which had already appeared in Punk Magazine, and shelled out $125 for the rights. Uh, the Ramones' self-titled debut was released on April 23rd, 1976, and it was not a financial success, reaching <laughs> reaching the dizzying heights of 111 on the Billboard charts and selling only 6,000 copies in its first year. Yes, 
more people listened to this show than bought the first Ramones album in its first year. Suck it. I Ramones. call that a win. <laughs> Who will be the most influential gang of uh, misanthropic dilettantes? <laughs> Only time will tell. I, uh, I'm going to start telling people I beat John, Joey, Johnny Ramone. <laughs> in what? It's not important. It wouldn't be certified gold by the RIAA for sales of over 500,000 until April 13th, 2014, almost exactly 38 years after it was released. I'm shocked that it didn't have some kind of a spike. I mean, I guess that's a hell of a jump from 6,000 to half a million, but still, like, that's for such an iconic, influential album. I can't believe it sold. I don't know. Maybe just a lot of people are trading copies from record stores and thrift shops and stuff. I mean, I don't think they were big. Uh, well, it makes sense for me. The timeline makes sense for me because their first, this came out in 76. Their first UK shows were a year later. They weren't really getting mm. booked in the States outside of New York. And they weren't big in Europe until they make it over there where they were huge, at least in London. So, yeah, I don't know. It tracks, but it's depressing. Yeah. Sire publicist Janice Shop. Uh, in Everett True's Ramones biography, Hey Ho, Let's Go, said the first album only sold 7,000 copies, even though I had a two-level horizontal file cabinet, one for the Ramones press and one for all of the other Sire acts. In that same book, Melody Maker journalist Chris Charlesworth recalled that there was a preview party held at the label's West 74th Street building, but it didn't last long because he said the album was over pretty quickly. <laughs> He said, if it had been Atlantic launching the new Led Zeppelin album, there would have been an all-up market with huge speakers and a wide variety of food. Lobster, heaven knows what. This was fun, but scruffy. We were served this dreadful sweet red wine, the worst I've ever tasted. Bottles of it were pressed on us as we left. Two bottles of it stayed in my kitchen, undrunk for months afterwards. Real last resort stuff. Seymour Stein told the New York Times, I got hate mail when the record came out. The manager of two of my bands threatened to sue me if I didn't drop the Ramones. On what grounds? Moral outrage? Uh, But the Ramones' impact was arguably felt the greatest in the UK in the immediate aftermath of the album's release. As you mentioned, they couldn't even get a gig in New Haven. Uh, They went over to play a small series of gigs in England at the Roundhouse, and Joe Strummer was one of the many future punk luminaries, if you call him a punk i guess you can that was there he said that he doesn't think the clash would have had support in the uk if the ramones hadn't laid the groundwork and they played at the roundhouse where i've heard multiple versions of how many people were there i've heard some people say about 60 people turned up and then i've heard people say it was sold out it was a relatively big venue at least like a couple thousand so i don't know your mileage may vary but among the people who showed up were future members of the sex pistols the clash the stranglers and the damned and I think it was in uh, End of the Century, I, I believe it was Joe Strummer, who tells a story about them going like around back of the venue and like calling up to their dressing room and just like throwing rocks at the window like Romeo and Juliet style <laughs> and asking to be let in. And the Ramones formed a human chain and hoisted these guys up inside through the dressing room window, which which I love. They were a lot nicer than most of the Brits thought they would be. Uh, they all assumed that the Ramones would be a gang from the Bronx or something. Uh, Johnny Rotten thought that they were going to get beaten up by the Ramones, but he was uh, pleasantly surprised. And then he spent the rest of his musical career being the worst version of himself. Yeah, he sure did. 
Uh, UK punk was basically launched off the Ramones' debut album. Joe Strummer said in End of the Century, if that Ramones record hadn't existed, I don't know that we could have built a scene here because it filled a vital gap between the death of the old pub rocking scene and the advent of punk. When he first talked to them in 76, he was worried that his band's musicianship was still too rough for them to start recording. Johnny Ramone responded, Are you kidding? We're lousy. We can't play. If you wait until you can play, you'll be too old to get up there. We stink, really. But it's great. Sid Vicious was supposedly obsessed with the band and learned how to play whatever uh, bare rudiments of bass he did acquire by playing along with the debut. And one of the earliest and most iconic power pop punk bands, the Buzzcocks, worked up their own cover of Judy is a Punk after hearing it. Brian James of The Damned told The Guardian, those July 76 Ramones gigs were mesmerizing. We got a copy of their album early on. Me and damned drummer Rat Scabies, my favorite punk rock nickname ever, listened to it after we drunk a few bottles of Collis Brown, a heavy morphine-based cough medicine. We thought, F- this is good. <laughs> Hilariously, Craig Leon, who went on to have quite a career in classical music of all genres, was hanging out with renowned tenor Luciano Pavarotti in 2000 when the singer told him, he was interested in recording an album of soccer chants, which let's table that for a moment because that's insane. Uh, Leon took the opportunity to play him Blitzkrieg Bop, which he said Pavarotti loved and started singing along to, which regretfully I don't believe there is a recording of. Hey, ho! <laughs> it's like when he does Perfect Day. <laughs> Most importantly, though, the record is in the Library of Congress. <laughs> good uh i love the line that joey wrote to be read at the rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony that took place a year after he died in 2001 we always loved each other even when we weren't civil to each other in that way we were truly brothers well said yeah i mean you can see here at the bottom i was typing something so that one of my coworkers would not look at me as they exit <laughs> Um, I forgot that was there. <laughs> and in that spirit, I was like, "Oh yeah, Heigl's got another thing to say." <laughs> no, <laughs> he sure doesn't. He'll have a nice outro. Oh no, I don't. I mean, you know, I I hope everybody who listens to the Ramones gets a combination of either that I can do this, and then they want to do it, or they get some distant shimmering memory of what rock and roll originally was or at least the actual animating spirit of it like whatever it stands for nowadays it it was fun and goofy and simple and pure and it's great that they left us with something that expresses that and that's all well folks the Ramones were bad at ending their songs so are we and so are we <laughs> <laughs> we should have opened with that. We really should have. Yeah, should punch that, that in. I'll punch that punch in. Punch that yeah. in. Oh, yeah, there you are. Oh, there you are. Uh, this has been too much information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Rontog. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> 
Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.